Nice to see you guys. Excited to go through the book of Hebrews with you. Is the Lord teaching anybody anything in Hebrews? He's teaching me a lot. Tonight is blowing my mind, so I'm, you know, I'm a little nervous, actually, because <laughs> it's just exciting. It's like, have you, has anybody ever noticed, like, I mean, some of you maybe have taught the scriptures a little bit or led some things, and you'll go back to a passage that you thought you knew so well, and you're like, this is like totally new to me, you know, and the Lord is just revealing um, his beauty to you. You know, it's not like it's anything new doctrinally or anything like that, new to mankind. That would be concerning, but um, you know, just new stuff tonight that he's pulled out for me, that by his grace, I'll be able to teach you. So we're going to cover this in prayer before we make a mockery of it all. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thank you for the book of Hebrews. Uh, Lord, thank you just uh, for you including it in the canon, Lord, and just, um, Lord, that, that you moved on men to just recognize it, that it's useful for uh, just the, the advancement of the faith, Lord, and just making much of Jesus. And um, Lord, here in Hebrews chapter 4, um, there's just a lot that I, am, I just am in awe of and... Um, Lord, I pray that it would be your spirit that would just make all of us in awe of you and your sovereign plan, um, even in making a rest available for us, Lord, that our minds would be blown in how you've made rest available for your people, God. And so um, just get all of the eyes on you, Lord, tonight. Uh, use this man as a vessel to just get your truth and your word out there. And I just pray that at the end of the evening, everybody would just be glorying in their God and so excited about who you are and uh, how you've redeemed us, Lord. Just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, um, I know you're in Hebrews 4, but flip back a few books to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, we were going to read this last week, but ran out of time. And uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. says, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness." Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So I just wanted to read that excerpt from 1 Corinthians uh, so that we are aware of the Old Testament being very profitable for us. Um, verse six tells us there are these things that are written in the Old Testament, things that we read through at length back in April during our fast, the whole uh, first seven books of the Bible we read, all of those things that we read are examples for us. 
kind of like examples on what not to do, <laughs> a lot of it. Certainly some wonderful victories there to follow uh, in, in the men and women from the Old Testament. But uh, really what we read here from Paul is it's saying, hey, don't do this. Remember when they did it? Not good. Don't do this. Remember when they did it? Not good, right? Um, and those are all good things for us to glean. But verse 11 tells us that all those things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages come. So we are able to learn through the Old Testament people, and tonight specifically the children of Israel. Hebrews 4 is going to use them as an example of um, what not to do, how not to receive, how not to move forward, and, and how to move forward, how to receive. Um, we're looking at tonight how uh, there's a promise of rest that remains. We've been looking at Jesus is better than this and that and him and her and these things. And tonight we look at Jesus is better than Joshua and Jesus's rest is better than Joshua's rest. The author is going to take the idea of the promised land type rest that we know of from the Old Testament and the Sabbath rest. And he's going to tell us if Moses and Joshua and all of the other fathers could not produce rest, then why, since you found rest in the Messiah, would you go back to the old things and go back to the types and the pictures rather than staying in the substance where that rest is found? Chapter 4 continues on from chapter 3, that theme of entering into the rest and entering in today. I think it's four times in this chapter that the word today is mentioned, and three of those times is today if you will hear his voice. Enter into that rest. Five different senses the word rest is being used here. Uh, in a promised land rest setting, we read of that clear back in chapter 3, verse 11. Uh, that promised land rest was not entered into by those who rebelled. And we're going to read that again in a, in a second. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 19. We see that promised land rest given in a promise. It says, Deuteronomy 25, 19, one verse. Stick with me and listen. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. And so there's just this promise of rest given as they would go in and conquer the land. And some of the Israelites entered into that rest. But would you say it was the majority or the minority people that did that? It was a minority, wasn't it, where uh, nearly all males, uh, 40, uh, excuse me, 20 years old and above, would fall and perish in the wilderness wanderings, uh, where only Joshua and Caleb were the younger men that, uh, that would live to see the promised land and lead the children into the promised land. Uh, but even those that entered that rest, they were only partaking of the shadow that the writer refers to. It's a shadow rest. Uh, we're looking at the, in Hebrews 4, the totality of the rest wasn't there because it's fulfilled in the person and work of Christ Jesus. The apostle who writes here declares that our privileges by Christ under the gospel are not only as great, but greater 
than the promise of rest enjoyed by people under the Mosaic law, whether that be through the Sabbath law or whether that be through the promised land experience. And so the author will specify that since we have a promise left to us of entering in rest, entering into a covenant relationship with Christ that is oh so restful, entering into a state of communion and fellowship with God that is oh so restful and growing in that communion until we're made perfect in glory, then we should enter into that even tonight on this Wednesday night. We see tonight that Jesus is better than the leader Joshua and the rest that Jesus provide is better than the rest Joshua led the children of Israel into. Look at verse one of Hebrews chapter four. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Now, We always want to look around and see why that word therefore is there. And uh, hopefully you're kind of remembering a little bit from last week. Like I was saying, I'll teach something. And, you know, by the end of the week, I I go and read through my notes again. And I'm like, oh, wow. Oh, man, I I totally forgot this or that. It's, It's very sad. And I've been warned a lot by preachers that I'm listening to. Hey, don't think just because you preach something that you're living it or you're obeying it has been very sober warning for me, but it's also true. Don't think just because you've heard something that you've lived it and you've obeyed it. So um, Lord, help us to hear and obey, to be doers of your word tonight. Um, And so uh, we remember from chapter three, if you'll go back to chapter three, verse six, uh, we read that Jesus is better than Moses. Uh, Moses was a faithful servant over the house, but Christ, verse six tells us, was the son over his own house whose house we are, all right, so encouraging. And we looked at last week that word, if. We are the house of Christ, if. If we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end, or if we continue, we're part of Christ's house. Hebrews three twelve through 15, we were warned sternly from the apostle, beware lest, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So there's these warnings to us, these great promises, but contingent on the continuation continuing on and abiding with Christ. In verse 15 of chapter three says, while it said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then if you jump down to verse 16, who was it after hearing rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And so this idea of the children of Israel walking in rebellion, walking in disobedient, walking in sin, walking in unbelief. Those are all words that are used even in the last three verses of chapter three. And there's a warning there for us to not think we're better than they are. And we mentioned last week that so often when we read, we're like, well, you know, I'll just tell you one thing. 
if I would have gone in to spy out the land and we came back and gave the report, I would have been standing right there with Joshua and Caleb. Man, I would have been numbered with those 20-year-old men who made it into the promised land, you know? And, and the statistics show differently in so many different ways that really we would probably be the people that are defaulting into unbelief and complaining and going into immorality and rebelling against God and murmuring and wailing and whining against him. And so Hebrews graciously gives us many warnings, uh, specifically in the last week, a warning against not continuing a warning against getting a hard heart through the deceitfulness of sin, a warning against an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. And all of these things would prevent us from entering in. The very last verse of chapter three says, those people could not enter in and it all summed down and trickled down to the one thing that they didn't believe. They didn't believe the word of the Lord, even though he confirmed it with many signs and wonders. Hebrews tells us that at the beginning of chapter one. But they would not believe, so they would not enter in. Therefore, okay, so that kind of sets some tone for us to get into chapter four. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering into his rest, and I would like to add in 2013, a promise remains of entering his rest. Let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. The author goes on in this chapter to tell us how we know a promise of rest remains. And that same warning of coming short of that rest is for us this evening. Rest. We're going to read that word many times in this chapter, rest, rest, rest. And you might with your highlighter or your pencil, your pen or your e-Bible that you can highlight on, you might just use a certain color and just mark that word rest. Because as we study rest tonight, we want to know that it is our business to see to it that we as the legal recipients that we would lay our claim to that rest and that freedom from dominion of sin freedom from Satan and the flesh as men with souls who at one point were kept in servitude. At one point we were kept from true rest of our souls, but now we've been set free from the yoke of the law. We've been set free from the toilsome ceremonies and services of the law that you would have to keep verbatim, point by point, rule by rule. And now in new covenant fellowship with God, we get to enjoy peace with God. We get to enjoy his ordinances and his providences. Our consciences are now free to serve God and worship God. We have everlasting, real fellowship and joy and rest with God in heaven. And knowing that that's out there, and knowing that it's promised to those who are in Christ, may there be a fear upon us, the author tells us, a fear that we might be afraid. You know, there's many times in the scripture that the word fear can mean to respect and to worship God, to have a holy reverence of God, amen. 
But there's a case here in the book of Hebrews where there's actually a good, wholesome, healthy fear being afraid that is prescribed to the readers. God forbid any one of us come short of this rest. Makes me quake to think of myself coming short of that rest. And loving you, it makes me quake to think that any one of you on that day would come short to fail to attain this rest, to lack the benefits of this rest. The author says, let us be very careful. Are you hearing this tonight? Man, this is, this is the book of Hebrews. This is God just leading us to study this this summer. This is a word for our church. This is a word that we can hear and we get to go out to our core groups and our, you know, our circles of friends from the church and we get to share, hey, you weren't there Wednesday night. Let me read the passage and let me just, you know, let me just share a little bit here, there. And there's warnings that I think for our church, we need to hear. Guys, we need to hear this. We need to hear this. You're probably not with Caleb and Joshua. And I'm probably not either. And so, Lord, draw us near to you that we would be by your grace. Let us be careful. We have the, the account of Caleb and Joshua and the other 10 spies and, and that failure on the other 10's part to c- complain and murmur and to say we can't go in and attack. We have that written as our example. And you take heed. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us. Kenneth Taylor has a paraphrase of the book of Hebrews and he says, we ought to tremble with fear because some of you may be on the verge of failing to get there after all. Phillips, J.B. Phillips, you know I love him. Great, great translations for uh, simple-minded readers like myself. But he said, let us be continually on our guard. I think that's why there's the passages in the New Testament that we studied last week in Hebrews 3.13 that daily we would exhort one another lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Daily we need to be exhorting one another, calling each other, texting each other. How are you doing? What's going on? I'm sensing this in you. I'm seeing a little bit of this. Man, I just don't want you to be hardened at all. Not even one day is worth of being hardened. Where you been? What you doing? I saw this on your Facebook post. It doesn't seem right. Maybe it was a mistake that you put that on there, but let's look at it here, you know? And oh man, it seems that you're getting a little bit hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hey, I could be there too, man. That's why daily God's put us in each other's lives. Let us be continually on our guard, not just for ourselves, but for each other. I'm so thankful that Paul would would confront and, and write people like the Galatians, or, you know, a region really it was. It wasn't to one church, but the, re- the people in the churches in Galatia who had started to become estranged from Christ because they went back attempting to be justified by the law. And Paul said to them, you've been estranged from Christ. You've fallen from grace. It's good to speak that into each other's lives. Hebrews 12, we'll get there in maybe eight weeks. We will, we got a schedule, we got to keep, Lord willing. Look carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, causing trouble. By this, many have become defiled. Oh, not in Calvary Chapel of Kirk County. Here, in me, it happens. In me, it happens. 
Take heed, you guys. Be careful. Be continually on guard. Lest any of us come short of that rest. Verse 2 says, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. If you're just starting to come to this church, and and some of you, maybe you're just kind of getting into Bible studies here, you kind of been a part of church. We use the word gospel a lot here. Uh, We're a gospel-centered church. In fact, we're not trying to just do this on our own. This is something that the apostles would do. They use the word gospel a lot. Uh, The gospels use the word gospel a lot. And I love the term. It's euangelion. In various tenses, tonight it's euangelizo, okay? It's the various tense that it could be on. But it means to proclaim the good news, specifically the good news from the battlefield. And and it's said here that the gospel was preached to them. In the Old Testament, there was a gospel. There was a looking forward to the Messiah. There was a looking forward to the kingdom, just as we look back to the Messiah. And it was preached to us as well as to them, But when they heard the good news, it didn't profit them. And we see two different ways that you can receive the good news. And the good way would be to receive it mixed with faith or mingled with faith as you hear it. The children of Israel heard the good news, but it didn't profit them. They didn't hear it and put it in their heart, applying it to their life take it and wrap it around their felt needs, wrap it around their heart, wrap it around their thinking, wrap it around their approach to life. A good news that would show us that you can't do it, you never could do it, but there's someone that's coming that will do it. Rest in him, put your hope in him. Such a warning to us who, who you know, we know way fewer uh, much fewer, many fewer, however you want to word that so that it sounds nicely in a sentence, less than uh, any Jew over in Israel. Man, you got those Jews, man, they know the Bible from the day, they read it, they study it, they memorize it, they bob their head outside the wailing wall, praying it and quoting it from a young, young age. And it just is a sober warning to us that we can know the word, have the verses memorized, argue theology, But there's something about taking God at his word, believing it, resting in it, and walking in it. I was a high school pastor for almost eight years, and there was a school in the area up there, Saniam Christian. And I'll tell you what, there were not many Christians in Saniam Christian. (laughs) There were just as many carnal, worldly, filthy people at Saniam Christian as there were at Corvallis High School, or Crescent Valley High School, or wherever, or Philomath High School, Because it's not about just being born into a family that saves you. And many people get going and they're raised in the Christian school and they have that in their mind, that that's what it's about. Or it's about this religious activity, but they never mingle what they hear with faith and allow the Holy Spirit to work it out in their life. And so we have the example tonight of the children of Israel and a rest that was waiting for them called earthly Canaan. And as they finally entered into earthly Canaan, it was there that they failed to realize a perfect rest, even though they got there. And that failing to realize a perfect rest because there were giants and there were battles and there were shrines that needed to be destroyed and work that needed to be done, 
that was a picture to them. It was, a, it was something that should have prompted them to look beyond the here and now, here in Canaan, and look to a future heavenly land of rest. A rest by which faith and believing and trusting and resting is the road to. Unbelief excludes people from this heavenly rest, just as unbelief excluded people from the earthly Canaan. uh, Unmingled or unmixed with faith has a Greek accusative case to it. They're being charged with unbelief, disobedience, hard hearts. And it was just, an, it was just a, a picture, a shadow of what was to come. A rest that it's available that will not be entered into by many because it's not mixed with faith. People aren't believing. There's a promise of rest, but we want to respond in a way that only a few did. And that's with belief. You look at Caleb, who would later on try to lead a battle and say, I'm 87 years old and I feel like a youth. Let's take this mountain. And you've got people around him that say, you know what? I've heard it before. I'm not impressed, old man. Like, but I feel like I'm still a youth. Let's do it. Well, God's with us, you know. Ah, just not feeling it today, buddy. You know, and how we can be like that. As one man said, it'd be better to be a pagan with no interest and the possibility of being reached than to be a casual, almost believer who would learn and memorize a menu but never eat at the restaurant or who would memorize a flight path but never go traveling anywhere. Better to be a pagan with no interest whatsoever than to be a casual, almost believer. Be careful. Be careful, is what the author says to us tonight. To listen to the gospel while remaining destitute of faith is to fall short like the rest. A lot of things cause the seed to not take root. We've studied that a lot the last few weeks as the seed is put forth. But so tonight, if you would hear the Lord speak, then cry out to him. Spend some time here in the sanctuary tonight and just find a seat by yourself and just say, you know what, man, it's been so long since I've heard the Lord speak to me and I've applied it to my life. I just need to like go in the prayer room and just respond to the Lord and pray. As we have these warnings in the book of Hebrews, one man said, we should note that these warnings are misunderstood when they are thought to teach the believers, true believers may fall away and be lost just as accidents are avoided by obeying the road signs that are put up for our safety. So we are preserved for the danger of our pilgrimage by paying heed to those warnings, which are next to the promise of salvation. Therefore, all who know the plague of their own hearts will never deem it safe to to dispense with what God considers to be necessary for their spiritual safety. Very similar. It's like when we go on a, on a flight, most of us have flied, have flied recently, right? Flown recently. And if you've flown at all, you just got off a plane today, didn't you? Yesterday. So you know what I'm talking about. I'm so confused right now. (laughs) Welcome home. That's what I was getting at. You know, we sit there and they get on the telephone thingy and she tries to hold it in her neck while she shows us how to like buckle our seatbelts and put an oxygen mask on and where the exits are. 
No one listens to that poor gal, you know. We're just like, okay, reading the in-flight magazine or doing whatever. Nobody listens, but you've got like two people on that plane that are just like, You know, because I'm the one that pays attention. Emergency exit. And so when the plane crashes, they're like, I totally know how to remove this emergency door and toss it, you know, and do this and that. They've listened. We do well to heed the warnings. Not on the plane. We all know what to do. But here (laughs) we do well to heed the warnings. Verse three tells us, for we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. This is a quote from Psalm 95, 11. And so we begin to get in a notion of rest that is directly related. And it's kind of cool because it goes from Canaan to creation account here. And, and so here in verse three, we have this notion of rest that's directly related to a rest that God was part of um, following creation, and it's a rest that he is still in now. It's a rest that predates the Exodus. It's a rest that predates the Canaan entrance. It's actually a rest that God enjoyed after completing creation, and there's something we can learn from this. First of all, this is a nature of our rest. There was nothing that could be added to what God had done. There was nothing else that needed to be done. When he looked at creation, he saw that it was good. It was as it should be. And then he rests. The task was complete. The purpose was accomplished. That rest didn't lead to idleness. John 5 says, my father's always at work and I too am working. But the rest that God partook of and is partaking of is an expression that everything has been absolutely taken care of. Even the salvation plan. When Adam and Eve sin, bam, the proto-evangelion is given. And the plan of salvation is given out in Genesis 3.15. It's even said that Jesus is the lamb that has been slain since when? Since the foundation of the world. So when God created and then he rest, he was just like, it's done. I can rest now. Nothing else needs to be added to it. Jeffrey Wilson writes, God establishes the pattern upon which man's life was to be built by following the cycle of his creative activity with his day of rest. Okay, I want you to remember that. That God in creation, he established a pattern that our lives were to be built upon. We're going to follow this cycle Six days will work, on the seventh day will rest. It's kind of got a rhythm to it. The idea communicates to life that there will be a rest that lies beyond all of this toil. After God worked for six days, he rested purposefully. One man put, in that is actually the framework, the rhythmic cycle that was intended for all humanity. Therefore, when humanity denies the existence of a creator, God, and breaks the link between a personal God and his creation, then they will inevitably deny any significance to the days of creation. They will inevitably deny any rhythmic cycle that is part and parcel to the structure of humanity and will thereby find themselves in the seasickness of a world without purpose where every day runs into every other day 
ad nauseum. There's no refreshment. There's no rest. As Hamlet put it, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this life. So the idea of rest has been created into us as part of a rhythmic cycle. And we in our sin and in our fallen condition have departed from it. The Lord's day matters. The the law that, that spoke forth, a Sabbath rest, wasn't done away with in Christ. It was fulfilled in Christ. And so just as it's not okay to go commit adultery or to covet your neighbor's this or that, you know, it's fulfilled in Christ. And so Christ empowers us to obey in that way. So too is a Sabbath rest. It's very purposeful for us. But when we live in a culture that has the idea that God is dead or that God is just, you know, removed from any of the experiences of his creation, um, then people don't pay attention to his son or to a day that he's set aside to worship him and to rest in him and to keep holy. I like what Alistair Begg said, the Sabbath was a creation ordinance which placed the day of rest at the end of six days of work. But when Adam sinned, it became impossible for man to attain the rest of God by his own efforts. Therefore, this now required nothing less than a second creation. And by keeping the Sabbath on the first day of the week, which is established in the dying and rising of the Lord Jesus Christ, the people of God gladly acknowledge that their entrance into this rest depends entirely upon the redemptive achievement of Jesus Christ. I like that. I've had to read over it 10 times tonight so that I could just so fully appreciate it. And I just want to paraphrase it to you as well. God put an ordinance on us as created beings that we would rest at the end of six days of work. But we, in our fallen condition, can never measure up to that, can never attain that. He says there had to be a second birth, all right, a new creation of this Sabbath day rest. And when did that occur? On Easter morning, for lack of a better word, you know, for Resurrection Sunday. We began as Christians to meet on Sunday, on the first day of the week, so that we continue on with this idea that there's a rest that's to come. Yes, there's a rest that's now, but there's a rest that's to come. And God has redeemed the idea of the Sabbath day through the gospel, through redemption. He made it new. But even before that, he told us in the gospels that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. You guys remember the story when they were walking through near the Valley of the Doves and the disciples were popping grain and eating it and they got chewed out by the Pharisees for picking grain and gleaning on the Sabbath. And Jesus says something that's so profound Man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for men. God in his sovereign creating, he he has this all pointing towards rest that is found in Christ Jesus and rest that we will attain that is eternal in the heavens. It's not temporal and it's not fleshly and it's not worldly. This rest that we read of, that Jesus is the Lord of, is foreshadowed in Canaan, It's related to the work of God in creation, has something to do with that Sabbath principle of God's people, and it finds its apex in the New Testament when we find rest for our souls. We want to rest, and people try to sell us rest. 
We buy timeshares and we just do what we can during the year to just get some rest. And we forget that chiefly rest is found in Christ. Rest for our souls is found in Christ. And so here we see a salvation rest in Hebrews chapter four. What verse are we in here? Verse three goes on to this salvation rest, a rest that was done through the lamb that's been slain since the foundation of the world. And the author lists faith as the indispensable quality to enter into this rest. Rest sounds good. What do I need to do? You need to believe on the Lord of the Sabbath. That's like saying you need to believe in the God of resting. All right. You're going to go buy a new mattress. Who are you going to buy it from? The Lord of the mattresses. All right. And so here we come to the Lord of the rest. And verse four tells us he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. God entered into his rest on the seventh day after creation. This Sabbath rest pointed out towards us. But in verse five, we read, Again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. So God finished his work. He's been resting ever since the day, the seventh day of creation. At creation, our salvation was a done deal. God ever since hasn't gotten disturbed. He hasn't been rattled. He's got it under control. He knows just what to do in his sovereignty and on his, in his omnipotence. He's able to relax now. And he wants you to share in that resting with him. Man, may we enter into that. You come in here worried and burdened. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, I believe it is, come unto me all you who are weary and who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and you'll find rest for your souls. I like what Hudson Taylor said. He was a missionary to China back in the late 1800s. And uh, though Hudson Taylor penned it, Tom Ewers, a good friend of mine who spoke at our men's retreat two years ago, would always share it to me as I would worry as a youth pastor. And he would say, Rory, bear not a single care on thyself. One is too much for thee. The work is mine and mine alone. Thy work is to rest in me. So what a word for us who we come in here tonight and we've got a lot on our plate. Some of it we put on ourselves. <laughs> Some of it's just part of being in a fallen world. We've got anxieties. Peter tells us to cast our cares upon the Lord for he cares for you. And what should we do? We should give them to the Lord. Don't carry one of them on yourself. I love that. One is too much for thee. The work is mine and mine alone. Thy work is to rest in me. And verse six, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of unbelief. So just pause real quick. I love this. It remains here even in 2013 that some must enter it. There's a group of people that had it promised at one point, but they did not enter in because of disobedience. 
Interesting that unbelief is synonymous with disobedience in the New Testament. In fact, three times in the New Testament, we read of obey the gospel, obey the gospel, obey the gospel. And in many other places, we read believe the gospel, believe the gospel, believe the gospel. And so some didn't enter in because they disobeyed and because they were full of disbelief. Chapter three, last week we read that uh, unbelief is an evil heart. Again, verse seven, he designates a certain day saying in David today, after such a long time, as it's been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You got to love this. So arrest remains today in Oregon. (laughs) Arrest remains. And he designates a certain day for that rest. What day does rest come? Today. Today, 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 today in this chapter. That's five todays. Don't get annoyed by me. I didn't write it. Today. Well, who wrote that, Rory? David wrote it. Almost a thousand years after it was promised to Moses. That word, today, enter into the rest, is available for us today. It was promised to Moses and to Moses' followers. And then to David, A certain day is designated and it's still called today. So we should run to that rest is what the author of Hebrews is telling us. Run to that rest. It's today. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie with Will Smith called The Pursuit of Happiness. You should get it. It's a good one. And Will Smith, he's got this sweet fro going on and he's got this little cute black boy, you know, he's got a fro going on and they've come across hard times and they're homeless. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie... But this is, I think of this movie when I read this chapter because they're homeless and they're trying to find a place to sleep at night. You know, one night they sleep in a bathroom, you know, and he's just with his son and he's trying to protect. And one night they're out in the cold and they just don't know. And they hear they're at one shelter and the shelter's closed. They're not letting any more people in. And he hears that across town, there's another shelter that, you know, they're opening the door in like a half an hour. And he, you know, that's their only hope for the night. And he's so weary And so he picks up his little boy and he starts sprinting Will Smith style through New York or where it's a big city, you know, and he's just sprinting and going through all the side alleys and going across and running and, you know, about getting hit by cars and running, 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 sprinting, sprinting, running that he might enter into that rest. I don't want to spoil your alert to you. You got to watch it to find out what happens. But it's a good picture for us. That we should run as fast as we can to get to the shelter of rest. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Interesting here. If we were reading in the Hebrew, it would have said, for if Jesus had given them rest. Or Yeshua and Jesus, it's the same word, just different languages. Now, if Jesus, the first Jesus, the prototype Jesus, or the archetype Jesus, uh, the, the one that the second one was uh, the, the fulfillment of, if that Yeshua, Joshua, had given them the ultimate rest and there was nothing else, then he would not have spoken afterward of another day. Joshua 22, 4. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus of the Old Testament 
says, now the Lord your God has given you rest to your brethren as he's promised them. Now, therefore, return and go to your tents and to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Moses, the representative of the law, could not lead Israel into Canaan. Just like the law cannot lead us to Christ. It teaches us about Christ, but it doesn't save us. In a sense, it leads us to Christ, but it doesn't save us. It's there at Christ where the law's office ceases. Just like Moses' office ceased at the border of Canaan. It's Jesus, this anti-type of Joshua, a prototype of Joshua, who leads us into the heavenly rest. Joshua didn't lead the children of Israel into the rest. David wouldn't have written of this rest a thousand years after. The promised land wasn't the ultimate rest. Are you getting that? I hope you're getting it. But rather, it's a picture of what the Christian life is supposed to be. There's giants and battles, but there's victory in Christ. This is not the rest. When we talk about rest, one man said it's not to be found in vacation or location. Story is told, and it remind, I was reminded of this last week as I went on an anniversary getaway with my lovely bride, where a newlywed couple went to their honeymoon suite, their honeymoon hotel, that they'd reserved months beforehand. When they got into their room, all they found was a table, a couple of chairs, and a sofa. They didn't see a bed, and finally, after much looking around, they noticed the sofa was folded down into a hide bed with a lumpy mattress. This was not what they'd reserved. It was too late to complain now. In the morning, they went to the management and voiced their cause. Our room didn't even have a bed, they shouted. The manager then asked, if they'd open the door in the back corner of the room. They went back to their room, (laughs) opened the door and found a luxurious honeymoon suite with a king-size bed, jacuzzi tub, fruit baskets, and champagne. They'd been so near to the rest that was available to them, but they missed it by a margin. And rest lies just beyond the door. It's in Christ. As much as I love to do my summertime vacation and go down to Lake Shasta, I know that that vacation will end. It's time to labor still. But there's a rest that we look to that never ends. And it's a rest that even is available for us today as we labor and toil and do battle. Verse 9 tells us, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. I love that verse. You got to underline it, highlight it, magic marker it. Write it on your forehead so that when you look into the mirror, you remember it, whatever. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. The Jews call it the future rest, the rest or the day which is all Sabbath. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Corey Tin Boom said, look within and be depressed. Look without and be distressed, but look to him and be at rest. Verse 10, for he who's entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. We have a new sense of the word rest here. It's the overcomer's rest. The word rest actually means to cause to cease. 
What are we ceasing doing in this Sabbath rest, in this Jesus rest, in this eternal rest, in this overcomer's rest? We cease laboring. We cease working as God did from his. Just as God was done, he said, it's done. There's nothing more to be added. We rest saying, it's done. There's nothing more to be added. Our souls find rest. We can kick back in what God has accomplished. John Calvin said, our highest happiness shall, according to this verse, consist in our being united in one with God and molded into conformity with him as our prototype, as our archetype. Isaiah 11.10 says, in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, that's Jesus in case you're wondering, he's the guy that's come from Jesse, who shall stand as a banner for the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. We're the Gentiles that are seeking after the root of Jesse. I sure am. I hope you are today. And that tonight, even tonight, 2013, other end of the planet from where Jesus was at, we're able to seek him and find his resting place to be glorious. Verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Just like Will Smith was running across the city. There was a label of, a, la, a label, a level, excuse me. There was a level of work that was being exerted out of those legs, packing his son and sweating to get to the rest. There was a diligence on his part. The word diligent here speaks of being zealous and to do it quickly, to do one's best or to be eager. If you're a King James Version man or woman here tonight, your version says, let us labor to enter that rest. Well, what just said, he who enters the rest has himself ceased from his works as God did from his. That's true. But our effort now is not an obligatory effort. It's a celebratory effort. We labor now and we're zealous to enter into that rest in celebration that we've entered it, that the goal is in sight, that it's been won for us and paid for us. And so we're celebrating. It's the difference between digging a ditch and planning a party. Both are work on some level, but the latter doesn't seem like work. Some of you would rather dig a ditch than plan a party, I know. We labor and we study to be part of the rest. It's kind of like laboring while you're planning a trip to Hawaii and you work as you look up hotels and rental car prices. It's oh so fun. It's not labor to get ready for vacation, to fold your sleeping bag and pack your suitcase and, you know, just get everything ready. It's exciting. You're looking forward. Let us be diligent to enter the rest. Lest anyone fall according to the same example we have in the Old Testament of disobedience, unbelief, and a hard heart. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, 
this is a great verse and we take it and we use it to show how great the word of God is. And it's wonderful to use that verse for that. But the context here is these examples of obedience to the word of God, obedience to the gospel that, that was preached to both us and the Old Testament children of Israel. And so, you know, Paul, whoever's writing it, <clears throat> uh, go ahead and say it, Frank. Yeah, it's Paul, okay. <clears throat> the author isn't just like shifting gears here and like, by the way, I'd like to do a little Bible study now on how great the word of God is. And that, you know, it's, this is a, you know, it's wonderful. And we're gonna pick it apart. But we need to understand that this is a very judicial verse here. Because the verse before it, we see in verse 12, the very first word is for. That's like a therefore. We see the, the verse before it, verse 11, speaks of being diligent to enter a rest. And looking back at those that didn't enter the rest because of disobedience, you go to the word, and the word is so living and so powerful and so sharp. It knew the thoughts and the intents of the hearts of the children of Israel. It's so able to divide between soul and spirit, spirit joint and marrow. It did that to them, and it does it to us as well. It's living. The word of God is living. It's not a ju uh, just a bunch of words on an old leather-bound book that sits on your nightstand and gets dusty and, and doesn't get read. It's more than black and white, and it's more than red letters. And if you doubt this, it's time for you to take your Bible and go sit on a mountain or go sit in a park or go sit somewhere and say, God, speak to me as you open up the word and read it. If the word is dead to you and not living, then you've grown cold and you need to start afresh today and allow the Lord to refresh you. It speaks here in verse 12 regarding the word's judicial power whereby it doomed the disobedient Israelites, it excluded them from Canaan, and it will exclude unbelieving so-called Christians from the heavenly rest. Psalm 147, 15 says that he sends out his command to the earth and his words run very swiftly. His words are living. They're judicial. They strike. They do surgery. They're powerful, literally energetically effective. That's the Bible. The Bible is the only book that is self-propelled. And it's a two-edged sword, the writer says. Sharper or more cutting than a two-edged sword. We know from Ephesians 6.17, as we're told to put on the whole armor of God, that as Paul goes bit by bit through our armor, he says, take the sword of the Spirit in your hand, which is the word of of God. And in 2 Corinthians, we see that though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We don't use a 50 cal machine gun in our spiritual warfare or a nuclear weapon. We use the weapons given to us, and the offensive weapon is that of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I was sharing with Joe, and some of you know that uh, my little boy has night terrors at night. And there's at times where it, uh, I, I sense that it's more than just a dream gone bad. But when he looks behind me and points and starts screaming, 
I begin to think there's probably something else going on. And we happen to be going through the book of Mark as I'm reading with the kids and we were reading about the woman with the issue of blood and Jesus looks down to her and he says, do not be afraid, only believe. Very simple, short snippet of a verse. And that was Russell and Laney in my memory verse that day. Lo and behold, that night, Russell has a night terror that wakes the whole house up. You can't wake him up out of it. <laughs> you know, cold shower. Nothing. Okay, don't try that. But, but as we're going through it and I sense a spiritual battle, I just say, I'm talking through into Russell's like subconscious. And I say, do you remember our verse? <laughs> you know, do you remember our verse? <laughs> I say, what is it? Yeah, he has it written on his nightstand. I say, not on it, on a piece of paper. We're not slobs. <laughs> and he says, I say, let's say it. Do not be afraid. Only believe. Yes, Jesus. Stronger. You are stronger. And we start worshiping. And let's say it again. Do not be afraid. Only believe. Ah. You know, finally, he kind of starts coming out of it. And just we're able to rejoice in the victory. And so I encourage you. To do what Jesus did in the midst of the spiritual warfare, Satan himself is tempting him and testing him. Own the word of God and let it be the sword of the spirit for you. It's sharp. It's a double-edged sword. And we take it into a very real battle against a very real enemy. For us to go out into the world without our armor on is foolishness. In fact, the kids just got back from a VBS in Klamath where the whole idea was the, the war and the battle that we're in. And they learned how to put on the armor of God. And Lainey tonight, as she's got food all over her face, you know, and we're talking, she's like, the sword of the spirit, you know? And I'm just like, praise God. Like my three-year-old knows about the sword of the spirit. Mix it with faith now, Lainey. Mingle it with faith and, and use the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Later on in Revelation chapter two, Jesus says, I am the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. And later on in Revelation chapter 19, at the second coming, Jesus comes riding a white horse and he has a sword coming out of his mouth. It's a, it's a picture of how powerful his words are. They're the valley of Armageddon as all the, battle, all the armies of the earth have come down against Israel. Uh, he just wipes out these, these pagan horrible armies with the sword of his mouth, with the word. He just consumes them like that. Later on, as the armies come back to get him after the millennial reign, he does the same thing and he just speaks. And the victory is won. This is a double-edged sword, sharpened on the front and on the back. Warren Wearsby says it's a short sword or dagger, a weapon used at close range. It does its damage through quick and precise penetration. This is how the word does its work in our heart. At short range, at a moment of meditation, suddenly God's word has the ability to penetrate our spirit and knife through our resistance. Has anybody been there? I mean, you are just as hard and as callous as it can be, and what happens? You're all there, and you read a verse, and you open it up, or the pastor just reads it, and you are just you're confronted, aren't you? You're confronted. Somebody knows my deepest secret. And that's what's happened here. And that's what it's speaking of. Chrysostom, the golden tongue preacher from the 300s says, it judges all that is in the heart for there it passes through at once punishing unbelievers and searching both believers and unbelievers. Again, this is a judicial word, the sword of the spirit with the double edge has one edge for convicting and converting some and the other for condemning and destroying the unbelieving. We see this in Hebrews 4.12 and in verse 14. 
1915, the word represents that judicial power coming out of Christ's mouth to smite the nations. We read that it pierces even the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I like what, uh, let's see, who was it? I think it was uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown who said, which sword being sharpened to the utmost keenness never ceases to divide all sensible things and even things not perceptible to sense or physically divisible, but perceptible and divisible by the word. Alistair Begg kind of taught me how to teach. You can blame it on him. Uh, And in one of his teachings, he just says, you know, you want to write yourself empty. Start out your Bible study by writing yourself empty. And then when you're done doing that, you read yourself full. And then after that, you pray yourself keen. And that always, I always just spend some time before teaching where I oftentimes just on my knees, I'm so desperate for God to just take the word and use that sharp, 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 like a surgeon's scalpel is the idea, that sharp sword and make it so keen. Make me keen by the spirit to where we're at as a church. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Not only is it a weapon that we can use against the enemy, it's a surgical instrument that we can use on ourselves. I read yesterday about a man in the Civil War who was wounded at Gettysburg. And as there were so many wounded, uh, the surgeons weren't able to get to him. And he had a, a leg wound that was such a gash from a cannon blast that he ended up having to cut off his own leg. And he didn't survive. And uh, his father was the most influential newspaper writer for the New York Times. And he came down to Gettysburg and found his son there laying where he had died. And he ended up beginning to write uh, very emotionally about the battle that had taken place. And it spurred on a lot of the, uh, the heart behind the North in the Civil War. But the idea that I, I share that is that that man had to do surgery on himself. Like the guy that got stuck in the rock down in Utah, you know, and he was just mountain climbing. And you all know the story. We too do surgery on ourselves with the word of God. That sword that untangles flesh from faith. It manicures our motives, Sandy Adams said. When we study, we train our hearts to differentiate between what is heavenly and what is human. What is soul at our most animalistic, one preacher said, and what is spirit at our most able to connect with God. The word of God fillets us. Dividing between what is soulish and what is spiritual. Why? What's the context of the whole chapter? So that we might enter the rest. Verse 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. How are all things naked and open? Through the word of God that fillets us open. The word open here means literally to throw on the back so as to have the neck laid bare as a victim with neck exposed for sacrifice. As we come to the word of God, we ask first that Lord, you would lay us bare, that you would let us be naked and open, that you would show us our sin, that you would show us our savior. Lord, that you would just lay us out with your word and shine in the light of your holiness and your present and your omniscience. You know what's deep inside our hearts. Just lay us open, God, just as if we were ready to be sacrificed for you. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for men whose hearts are loyal to him so that he might show himself strong on their behalf. The Lord knows whose hearts are loyal. Psalm 33 says that the Lord looks from heaven and he sees all the sons of men. 
from his place, from his dwelling. He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually and considers their works. All things are naked and open before the Lord. Psalm 90 verse 8 says, you've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. Hell and destruction are before the Lord. So how much more the hearts of the sons of men, Proverbs 15, 11. As we continue on, and we're going to do it quite quickly through the rest of the chapter, we see that Christ is superior to Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. He's superior in position, in ministry, in name, in application, in sympathy, and in perfection. And this is going to be a theme that we see throughout the next six chapters, roughly, from chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter 10, verse 18. And as we read of this priest who knows everything about us, we might say, oh no, I'm doomed. He sees all that I do. Our heart changes as we read verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The opposite of that would be to let our confession slip away. But knowing who our great high priest is, and he's not a high priest, he's the great high priest. Let us hold fast our confession. Moses nor Joshua could bring us into this rest, but Jesus as our forerunner, already spiritually and hereafter in bodily presence, body, soul, and spirit, brings his people to the heavenly rest. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all point tempted as we are, yet without sin. What a beautiful verse tonight. Who our high priest is. He is so sympathetic. He understands our weaknesses. He's been tempted all the ways that we are, yet without sin. You know, the story is told of, a, of during the great railroad movement across America and laying steel and laying track. Uh, there was a great chasm that, that an, an engineer needed to build a bridge across. And it was so huge. And, and after he built the bridge, he, he called for the heaviest locomotive with the heaviest load to come and to be sitting upon this bridge for hours and, and everybody watched as this bridge was unveiled and, and they waited and they waited and everyone was freaking out saying, why are you trying to break the bridge? And the engineer just said, I'm not trying to break the bridge. I'm trying to show you that the bridge can't be broke. And that's what Jesus did when he was tempted in all points, just as we are. It wasn't that God was trying to say, all right, here we go, buddy. You just better not let me down. No, he was showing everybody he won't break. He won't break. And that's our high priest. He wouldn't break. So he sympathizes with us, though, because he was tempted in all ways that we were. And verses, uh, verse 6, 15 tells us, yet he was without sin. Go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. We remember the importance of him being made a man. That in all things, he might be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, so that he could make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid, or succor is in the Greek, those who are tempted. In that he is the suffering servant, not only tempted with sin, but tempted with uh, tribulation and, and persecution. By his stripes that he endured, we are healed. He is able to aid and heal us. He was without sin. And so there's hope for us tonight. 
As our great high priest bore our sins, or Isaiah 53 says, he was wounded for our transgression. He's the one that's able to say to us, go and sin no more. I'm the one who was tempted in all points that you are. I had the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life thrown before me, but I endured. I pray for you that you'll endure. I'm the example that you would endure. And I empower you with the Holy Spirit that you would endure. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let us therefore, verse 16, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have access given to us by one spirit to the Father, Ephesians 2.18 says. We can come boldly tonight in worship with confidence the idea is with, with freedom of speech. Those who are younger Christians would come tonight and they would know their sin and they would shirk away from the throne of God. Oh, I know what I've done. He knows what I've done. Hey, enter into the rest tonight. Enter in the rest that's been made available by someone who's been where you're at, yet without sin. And he says, come on in. I'm a sympathetic high priest and I help you. Come in to the throne of grace. Come boldly to the throne of grace. And it's important to note as we close and we'll have the worship team come on up that this throne to Christians is a throne of grace. Peter tells us in 113 to rest your hope fully upon the grace of God. So for new believers, don't be intimidated to come to the throne of grace Just know what you've done and know you don't deserve mercy, but he is merciful. For those of us who are older Christians, we know that we come to the throne of grace to a sympathetic high priest. We recognize that we're still sinners and that we've failed. We lay aside the awards boards and we say, I've blown it. Forgive me. Give me grace to help me in my time of need. This is rest tonight. It's not location or vacation. It's found in the Son of God. Oswald Sanders says this rest is not based on the perfection of performance, but on the perfection of his relationship to us. Lord, we come to you tonight. We just set our things aside. We come to you tonight, Lord, and we just pray that you would draw us into that throne of grace this evening. Lord, those of us that just see you as as an angry God, Lord, we pray that you would just draw us into your mercy seat where we'll find it sprinkled by the blood of the lamb. In fact, we'll see it occupied by the lamb himself. Since such a promise remains that we would enter rest tonight, Lord, we in Prineville, 2013, Oregonians who hear the word, Lord, we receive it tonight by faith. We mingle it with faith. We mix it with faith. Lord, we saturate it with faith. And we just say, Lord, right now, we realize we're not perfect. We realize we've sinned and fallen short. But Lord, we want to cling to and hold firmly to the throne of grace. We hold cling and we cling to, hold firmly to the finished work of Jesus Christ. We let him pray for us tonight and intercede for us. We pray that he would send help to us in our time of need. Pray that he would comfort our hearts. 
Lord, anyone who's in this room tonight who thinks they're going to enter in by their labors and by their performances, may they take heed and hear the warning. Lord, just let the Holy Spirit tonight draw us in to the Holy of Holies and may we find rest right now that we've never had before. Lord, that if we went 20 years without a vacation or 40 years wandering in a wilderness, Lord, that we would find rest in the Lord of the Sabbath. And Lord, tonight we even want to just repent of our blatant disregarding of the Sabbath day, keeping it holy. And Lord, we've turned it into a day off and a day that we do what we want to do. And Lord, we come to Resurrection Sundays with hearts of rejoicing and celebration, Lord, because you, Lord, have redeemed the Sabbath. Teach us more about that, God. Be worshiped tonight. Let's stand and we'll just close with. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.